Hello and welcome to another episode of the CG Garage. This is episode number 412 featuring Jonathan Eggstad, who I have known for many, many, many years. Uh, or at least I knew him many, many years. I've been out of touch with him, but it is great, great catching up after a long, long break. Uh, he uh, is, I'm going to call one of the OGs of Nuke. Uh, and really knew uh, compositing and sort of sort of help build that entire uh, workflow for not just a digital domain at the time, but now Nuke has become sort of like the de facto compositing package that a lot of visual effects industry uses. And so uh, Jonathan really sort of laid that landscape out there, especially in the 3D sense of Nuke. So it was really cool to be able to talk to him and catch up with him. Super nice guy. Uh, he's currently at the Foundry doing some great stuff over there. Uh, but yeah, but Kristen, what did you think of Jonathan? Yeah, well, I refer to him as the Nuke Master um, uh -huh. and also an Academy Award winner. Um, and he's just worked on some amazing films, Apollo 13, Titanic, and iRobot with you. That's where you guys met, um, DD. Yep. Um, and like a lot of people we've had on the podcast, he kind of moved to LA on a whim. Um, and in his case, it was for his animatronic dreams, but yep. then moved on to CG. So um, you guys get a lot into a lot of specifics in this podcast, which I'll let you discuss and everyone can hear. Um, but he's worked at DD, DreamsWorks Animation. He goes into like remote working during COVID and then his new role at Foundry. So um, yeah, it's a great podcast. And you guys, of course, get into machine learning and then the future of Nuke. So very yeah, very excited stuff. I mean, I've always been a fan of Nuke. You know, when I first started, it was a very uh, intimidating package for someone who didn't really know much about compositing at all at the time, because you just open it up and it was just a gray slate with nothing there, and you just start with just a node. Uh, but it's obviously begun grown quite a bit, and it's like I said, very very important part of it. And it was really cool to have him on. Uh, the last person I've had from the Foundry on the podcast was Jody Madden, so it was really cool to have. Uh, her on back then. You could go check out that episode. Uh, but yeah, really exciting to have Jonathan on and uh, super happy that you were able to finally catch up after many, many years. All right, we don't have any product announcement right now, but we've got some long, an event that's going on for quite a, a, a long period of time. Kristen, tell us a little bit about what's happening. Yeah, so you can find this at chaos.com slash events. So this is actually, it started on January 31st and it will go to March 30th. Um, and it is a recording that you can watch of tools and techniques to visualize an eco-friendly home. Um, so you can learn how to render an animated virtual tour with Chaos Vantage and V-Ray 6 for SketchUp. So um, a lot of fun stuff and it'll be a recording. So access it until March 30th. So Perfect. Uh, yeah, lots of cool stuff to, to do there. So uh, if we people want to know more about the podcast, Kristen, where can they go? You can go to facebook.com slash CG Garage podcast or chaos.com slash CG Garage. And if you'd like to watch us, go to youtube.com slash chaos group TV. Of course, if you have any other ideas or questions about the podcast or comments, you can always leave us an email. Labs at chaos.com is where you can do that. People have been leaving us ideas. Uh, you guys know I'm on a mission to find more people that want to speak about machine learning and AI and art uh, and how it's affecting all of our lives for better or for worse. So please uh, give us uh, some some great ideas. Uh, we have we did uh, reach out to a couple people that uh, were suggested in labs. And we really appreciate it. So remember that is labs at chaos.com is the email you can suggest us those ideas. But for now, Please enjoy episode number 412 with Jonathan Eggstad. Welcome to another CG Garage. 
where the chaos group talks. You'll know it's over when the last bucket drops. We're gonna fire off rays in high dynamic range. We know that ambient occlusion is passe. Global illumination won't lead you astray. And while image-based lighting is really swell, you need to make sure everything has for now. It has been a long, long time since it you has. and I have uh, worked together at the very <laughs> least. But actually, uh, we, we've seen each other here and there at conferences and a few other things. Sure. Uh, so it's been it's been nice. But uh, I've actually wanted to have you on the podcast probably since the very beginning, My. Uh, which is over eight years uh, <laughs> that I've done this. Uh, so I'm I, I'm I'm very excited because I think that you've uh, you've sort of had a believe it or not a very important part of my education oh. uh, in terms of computer graphics. Uh, I learned by fire, as I say, in uh, in terms of color space and understanding a lot of that stuff when I was working on iRobot with you. Yes. And uh, yes. I was really, really uh, appreciative of those of that time. But uh, let's 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 go a little bit uh, before that. So, what what got you into computer graphics? What was the thing that sort of catalyst that got you in, involved in this in this industry? Well, it was a, a kind of a, a weird transition because uh, I got into it because of Jurassic Park, but not because of the reasons most people get into it because of Jurassic Park. Um, I yeah. actually came out to. Los Angeles to get into visual effects for to do motion control and animatronics. Uh, that was my, okay. that was what got me going. Is I loved mechanics. I loved uh, the computer controls of those. Uh, so for me, computer graphics were an interesting thing, but not not like something I wanted to do. So what I really mm -hmm. wanted to do was build creatures. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so, uh, yeah, uh, to, so to come out to L.A., I, I built a, a, a motion control system using my Amiga. Uh, and I built okay. an interface box uh, to control motors, servo motors. And I built uh, a friend built a little puppet. And, uh, you know, I kind of came out to L.A. saying, hey, look what I can do kind of thing. Um, right. But, you know, that, that didn't get me a job immediately. Uh, and so... And what um, year was this approximately? This was 91. So this is 1991. Okay, so yeah. Uh, yeah, so I just, I kind of did the whole California robust thing. I came out to LA, um, you know, with this uh -huh. and going, okay, I'm going to find a job. No problem, right? Um, and, and I did find a job, but it was in kind of what I was already doing, which was uh, video engineering. So I, I got mm. a job at Pacific Ocean Post uh, through an acquaintance. Okay. Um, but still, I was like, I wanted to do visual effects, right? Um, so on the side, a friend of mine uh, was working for DreamQuest. And okay. uh, so he and I collaborated. I, I was using, I took my Amiga animatronic uh, recording system, and we did this little, we did this little test uh, of a running dinosaur puppet. And so I built, I built a mechanism to do that. It was just an armature with a very simple little foam head. So it was just a test. And we shot it uh, on 35 mil on uh, at like 15 frames per second. We puppeteered it. And the idea was, it's like, hey, we had heard that Jurassic Park was going to be doing, you know, animatronics or motion, um, uh, stop motion uh, and go motion for the, the dinosaurs. And so I was like, ooh, maybe there's some, you know, possibility there. Uh, well, it, we finished this little test and we, we got it to, together. We slapped it over the background of the uh, back of a truck, you know, shot off the back of a truck. Uh, 
And we showed it to yeah. Hort Yateman and the others at DreamQuest, and they're like, oh, that was really cool. Less than a week later, after we showed that tape to him, word came down from ILM that uh, Jurassic Park was no longer being done by GoMotion. <laughs> right. It was being done in yeah. CG. And that was just like this, right. that was this moment where I realized that, oh my God, you know, the, my whole reason for coming to LA and getting into visual effects, all of a sudden I could see, you know, this brick road hitting this brick wall. <laughs> right. You know, so that's when I, I changed gears and, uh, and got right. more into CG. And then, um, but that didn't really come about until dream, uh, a digital domain. Okay. And how did you, so, so obviously, I mean, it's interesting you bring it up because I, you know, I, I, I've been following the story from the other side, and uh, in terms of I was watching uh, 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 Jurassic Punk and the story of Spaz Williams and mm -hmm. how all of that happened. So to hear how that affected you in in yeah. some ways is kind of an interesting was, thing, right? It was significant. It was it was profound because I realized that I was I had gotten into the industry kind of at the tail, the tail end of the generation that had come before, you know, so the eighties was all about motion right. control and the refinement of it. And just the, you know, the, the, the high watermark of what you could do in motion control and that type of optical compositing, um, you know, all those right. movies in the eighties were just unbelievable, but that was kind of this tailing out of that technology. They kind of hit the peak, right. And it was, this was the tail end. So around about that time, Apogee, for example, went out of business, um, boss mm -hmm. went out of business. Um, so all yeah. these fundamentally, you know, these important companies to visual effects in the 80s um, and all that technology were kind of dying on the vine, right? right. Uh, so digital domain seemed like better than like, uh, you know, optical compositing domain, for example. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, obviously you've had a lot of, you know, you were, you were doing a lot of stuff with computers. I mean, you had your Amiga back then. So mm -hmm. what was, how was that transition to computer graphics from just, you know, programming animatronics? Ah, uh, uh, yeah. So, I mean, up to that point, I, like I said, done very little. Um, I was programming beginning in the very early eighties. I started with the ZX81 and then Commodore 64, mm -hmm. and then Amiga. And I would, all along the way, I was doing, you know, spinning wireframes and just learning how to do those kinds of 3D, but no, with nothing, you know, nothing more complicated than that. So my main goal was really right. using it to do, you know, animatronics and, 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 and go motion and, and motion control. Um, so it wasn't until getting to digital domain and, and then getting involved in silicon graphics Right. And what you could do with those systems that all of a sudden this, you know, started to open up and really flame, I think, was the beginning of that, mm. um, because I didn't understand okay. how I didn't understand how TDI renderers worked or, you know, any of that. I, w I had no experience in materials or shading or or modeling or or any of that stuff at all. Not, no production experience in that. Um, sure. So for me, it was about. At the time, I was working in video engineering, so I was dealing with uh, flames and uh, Quantel systems and images, right? Images with alphas. Mm -hmm. So that was, for me, that was computer graphics, was images with alphas, uh, which is just compositing, right? <laughs> right. Uh, right? So how you get me those images, whether they're rendered in a computer or whether they're photographed or, or scanned or whatever, uh, you know, 
to me at the time, I didn't, I wasn't involved so much in, in the CG or the, you know, the CG part of it. I just wasn't, that wasn't my wheelhouse. So, yeah. but I got an opportunity to get more involved in the actual production because up until that time I was just doing engineering. Um, so uh, I got the opportunity to composite uh, at night on Apollo 13. Oh, and what were you compositing in? Uh, flame. <laughs> flame. Okay. <laughs> so, so I could always, I could always, I could always already, I could run the flame just as an engineer. I knew how to do right. it. I knew how, I knew the, you know, the ins and outs of how to manipulate it and maneuver, and I could do basic sure. things. But I didn't know the production, any of the production techniques. I didn't know how to color correct. I didn't really know how to key. So Apollo right. 13, um, Price Pethel, who was the head of uh, compositing at the time gave me the opportunity to do that while I was still the video engineer. <laughs> right, <laughs> so I was working. Nice. I was working yeah. two jobs, uh, and that right. turned out to be fantastic. That was really an eye-opening experience for me. That, that um, learning production on the fly, you know, with other people like uh, Brian Grill and uh, Carrie Vallejo. I, I don't know if Carrie Vallejo was on Apollo 13, but any, you know, those kinds of people who are also learning at the same time. We were all kind of this, you know merry band of people who are working at night, you know, kind of working on these, uh, uh, the, the side shift, um, and just right. absorbing, learning. Right. Yeah. Okay. Those are, yeah, it's interesting. Those are, I, I actually had, I've had Brian on this, this podcast too, and he was telling the same little story. Yeah. Like, working at night doing that, you know, yeah. and during the day doing whatever he had to do to make, you know, make ends meet. Exactly. Uh, which is interesting. Uh, but that was really, that's really cool. Uh, um, so, so you, I mean, I, I, you know, when I, when I knew you, you had been, you'd been, you know, it was when I started at DD, uh, Nuke was still its proprietary software. And it was mm -hmm. just going to become a commercial product. Yes. And you were very involved with Nuke at that time. So how yes. did, how did Nuke become part of your, 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 your history at Digital Domain? Yeah, that was another kind of happenstance uh, experience. Um, yeah, up until, uh, I guess, uh, T23D, I guess, T something like that. Um, Nuke mm -hmm. was being used for relatively little. It was really for layering together, uh, like CG, um, and okay. as a utility thing for the, 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 the guys who were doing the rendering and, and modeling. Um, so up until, you know, it wasn't really used, it wasn't being used for hardcore compositing until T23D because then we had to do stereo. And we couldn't really, mm. we couldn't pull off that in Flame. We had to do that in Nuke. And so that kind of pushed us a little bit farther. And at the time, we were uh, doing the vast majority of our work in Flame still at that point. And Nuke was this side tool that we used. Uh, and so mm. our primary interface was Flame. And we had a little tool called Flame to Nuke which would take okay. a, a, a color corrector or a, a action script and it would convert it to a nuke script and we could run it on the farm rather than just being uh, stuck mm. in the flame. So it was this natural transition towards uh, moving more and more towards nuke because we were kind of pushing the limits of what we could do in flame. And then all of a sudden it's like, oh, well, if I go to render something uh, at flame at film res, that could take hours. Right. Um, right. And I can't, I can't, I can't put it on the farm. I have to do it on my local machine. So Nuke could run on the farm. And so for that reason, we, we were motivated 
to to get more stuff going in Flame. I'm sorry, in Nuke. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so really, uh, you know, it was that gradual process of moving more and more into Nuke until uh, Titanic, where almost everything was was in Nuke because the shots were so big and so complex. Uh, and right. so Titanic was, you know, kind of like the, 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 high, like the high watermark, you know, like just like motion control mm-hmm. went through that. It was like that for Nuke, Nuke 2, it was that point where we had pushed it as far as we could go. And... We needed to expand. We needed to evolve. Um, and we knew we needed more mm-hmm. power. We wanted to have more flame-like capabilities, but in Nuke. And so that really was the motivation for uh, you know, moving on to the next version of Nuke. Um, but for me, it was the involvement was, as a user, learning how to use it and become more proficient at it and, and understanding its weaknesses. And then, and then getting a taste of, uh, making, uh, changing it as a piece of software, uh, and I, in you know, as a piece of engineering, um, and and making it do something that it didn't do before, and that was that was like a drug for me, <laughs> right? <laughs> because at the time, uh, this was I think this is around Titanic time. Um, Bill Spitzak, who is the primary engineer yeah. for Nuke, there were he was uh, actually working as an artist um, because there was some political. Okay issues with the engineering, the software engineering guys at the time. And so he was working at as an artist and I had run into this problem with Nuke where you would change frames uh, and it would take 30 seconds to a minute for Nuke to just change frames. You couldn't, it was almost mm-hmm. unusable. And, and so I was like, you know, what, what's wrong? Well, how can we fix this? And he's like, uh, I don't know. Uh, here, here's the code. <laughs> <laughs> figure it out. And I went, okay. okay. I was motivated. So I put print statements all through the code. And had you programmed before a lot? I mean, where I, was your programming I did, experience? I didn't, I didn't program a lot. It, I had done like Modula 2, which is like the next version of Pascal. That was it for me. I never okay. programmed in C. I was, it was like machine language, uh, basic, um, then Modula 2. And that was about the extent of my programming. Um, so I was by okay. no means an expert programmer, but I had done it enough that I, I wasn't fearful of it. Okay. So I was just like, okay, I can, I know what a print statement is. I can put print statements in. Um, and I put right. enough in the code to find where it was, you know, when I hit the frame change, it would spew out millions upon millions upon millions of lines of print statements. I'm thinking, <laughs> I think that's the problem. Right. Uh, so once we found right. it and discovered it, I was like, oh, okay, well, it was actually relatively easy to fix. But that was just like, you know, shooting up. It was like, oh, my God, I can change, I can change how the program worked. That's so cool. <laughs> and <laughs> yeah. that was like the snowball. Um, so, right. uh, so, yeah. So after that, um, uh, Nuke 2 transitioned to Nuke 3. And that was a, not an easy transition. Um, Okay. Because we had to convince, um, we had to convince uh, the management, um, like mm-hmm. Scott Ross, to fund a new round of Nuke. Because at the time, Nuke was perceived as, you know, it was done. <laughs> it, was a, it was a working okay. system. You know, why, why mm-hmm. did we need to re-architect it, right? So what was the reason behind why we needed to re-architect it? Uh, and those reasons right. really came out of Titanic and our experience on Titanic. Interesting. So, 
Interesting. Um, and, and, but there was, there, besides Flame, there was no real viable compositing package there was, out there. There was, there was Shake. That was the other, that was the other, okay. and there was um, uh, Chalice, I think, and a, a couple others, and Composer. Oh, right. But really, really okay. Shake. Uh, it was Shake and Flame. Shake for doing film res, procedural stuff, like, you know, like Nuke was capable of doing. Um, and we sure. did, we evaluated it. So, so Scott was like, well, prove to me, uh, you know, that we need to, and at the same time, evaluate what else is out there, uh, because we can buy something. Mm. And so we looked at Shake, and we evaluated it, and we're like, okay, well, this is nice, and this is nice, and this is, so it has some tools that we didn't have, but it didn't, it didn't, it didn't evolve us. It was like a lateral move. It like right. it had essentially the same capabilities with a couple more tools, but it wasn't a step up. And we were looking for a step up. And really, what was missing right. out of Nuke and missing out of Shake was a 3D system, a 3D viewer, okay, and more than four channels. More than four channels. It was that really, was the big one. That was the two the the two big things, right? Uh, and right. more than four channels being probably more important uh, than the 3D system. Um, I think that when we when we were on iRobot, and you can correct, you probably know better than I do, but I think we had sixty four channels. We did. We had capable. just expanded it to sixty four because it was right. at thirty two at the beginning. Right, um, and sixty four, and we still because iRobot is like, well, let's just see how many more channels and layers we can add in there, and then it turns out that sixty four was we we maxed it out surprisingly, <laughs> pretty quickly. Yeah, so quickly it was amazing because we. All of a sudden, we started to use OpenEXR. So OpenEXR was brand new at that time, right? We had yeah. that was the first show we'd ever used OpenEXR on. Um, yeah, and we were we were creating packed EXRs, which hadn't. I don't know if it had been done before, but that we were that was certainly mm -hmm. a first for us, where we were taking RenderMan right. renders, which were at the time just four channels or AOVs, but yep. you couldn't you couldn't like name the AOVs. With a unique name that always came out red, green, blue. <laughs> Even if it was right, diffuse, right, right, it would be right. red, green, blue. And then we would read those in and into Nuke into a combiner script, and then shuffle up the channels and re-architect it into different layers. Yeah, yeah, and then spit out a combined OpenEXR with all the channels. And we called those the. Uh, right. If you remember, we had the um, the stunt bot pack, and we had yeah. the hero bot pack, and those were the different, you know, yep. combined channels and so it gave us diffuse and specular but also um uh, uh you know the different layers the mecha the mechanism versus the plastic and we, so we could do diffusion yeah. and it gave us depth all sorts of additional channels yeah it was it was very very educational for me i mean it was the first time i'd ever done anything like that and it turns out it was one of the early times we'd, we'd ever done anything like that yeah. at dd but it was you know outputting not just red, green, blue, and alpha. It was outputting that plus a ton of different utility layers mm -hmm. that yep. would come out of it. Uh, and uh, it was what was interesting is I remember, like you said, RenderMan did not have the capability of doing everything at once. So right. when we were doing preview renders, we were only looking at RGBA. Mm -hmm. uh, and then when we hit go, it would output this ridiculous, crazy <laughs> amount of stuff, and then Nuke would sort it sort it out for right. you. Um, but you, we had developed of some pretty f elaborate, elaborate 
uh, uh, nuke scripts mm -hmm. to sort of create this uh, incredible illusion that nowadays is much simpler with just pure ray tracing. You, you get it for free now, right? Uh, yeah. That, yeah. But back then, it was just these it was crazy hard. scripts. And I think it was the MakeBot script specifically Correct. that we did. That. Now, did you, you were working on the MakeBot script. You figured out a lot of the, how to make this work, right? Uh, yeah, myself and uh, a few other people. Um, yeah, I mean, I was the DFX, digital effects supervisor on the show. Um, and right. I, I'm... Of course, forgetting who exactly was uh, the super other supervisors on it. I, my memory is so bad for people. Well, let's see, uh, Lou was on it. Uh, Lou was uh, on uh, it. Uh, was, uh, well, um, uh, Eric Nash was the VFX supervisor sure. on it. right. Yep. Uh, and who else was on it? Uh, there was a bunch of other people. Yeah, but yeah. So we, but we ended up with these, what we called the MakeBot gizmos, right? We had one for the stunt bots, right. which was a simplified version, more like background characters, background bots. And then we mm -hmm. have a hero bot, which was for like Sunny, uh, the hero mm -hmm. robot. And and yeah, there was a lot more channels for Sunny uh, than those stunt bots in the background. Um, and we needed it because at the time we couldn't do photorealistic, true photorealistic rendering. I remember talking about having the robots walking down the hall and they're walking down a hall under all these different lights that are, you know, different lighting fixtures and asking, oh, you know, we'll have it walking in and out of these pools. And they're like, no, we can't. We can't have it do that. I'm like, what do you mean? Right. I mean, you have the specular. Can we have the speculars moving properly? No, we can't do that because it's just an environment map. So it's like one, you know, it's one environment oh, right. and it's going to follow the bot along. And it's like, oh, my God. Um, so that was, you know, again, with my not big experience in CG uh, and not understanding right. some of the limitations of, of that stuff. I didn't really understand the implications of it. Um, yep. So, but we were able to composite our way out of it. And that's, that's the main, the main story of iRobot is us learning how to really get, you know, a big step up in photorealism because we were experienced enough compositors that we could. I mean, we had good lighting, but the, the, just the renders of that time just were not adequate enough to get us that photorealistic sure. look. And it required a lot of manual um, futzing <laughs> to yeah. look at, right? Yeah, and you, just to give people a perspective, especially those who are listening who know ray tracing stuff, I mean, uh, at the time, ray tracing was just not in the vocabulary no. of what was possible because it would just wouldn't, wouldn't be able to happen. So we needed to have this, this, this sort of semi-translucent shell that was on the robot, which mm -hmm. you could sort of see through. And the idea was we wanted to get the effect that you would get when you would have a sort of a glossy refraction pass yeah. inside. And what we gave Nuke was a pass where you just saw the transparency of mm -hmm. it just as it was. And then also gave it a pass where it had the vector distance between mm -hmm. the metal inside Correct. and the outside of the shell. Exactly. And then we would blur it mm -hmm. based on that distance that yeah. we would have and it totally sold the effect totally sold it <laughs> and the blur was like super simple it was like we you know that was one of the slowest thing is doing a per pixel different blur kernel size was was not terribly right. fast at the time so we just had a network of different blur sizes that we would it would switch between it would blend between depending right. on the z distance right and so we there was a lot right. of hacks in there to make it efficient and fast um and that was really the goal was that it allowed us to it was one of the first films that we did more than like 400 shots in a very short period of time. 
Um, yeah. It was, uh, was a lot of work in a short period of time, which we weren't used to doing that at the time. Uh, and so we really had yeah. to find ways of making us, uh, being able to like, get these renders out and look good quickly, um, which was sure. difficult to do at the time. Yeah, 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 for sure. I think the one the the one thing that was interesting uh, to me as well was, you know, we actually spent a lot of time up front mm-hmm. getting this system to work. Yes. And there was concern. I remember, you know, uh, Nancy Bernstein was like, you guys aren't pumping out the shots the way you should. You guys are behind schedules. Like, don't worry. And then it's, suddenly, like, the machine just worked. Like, whoa. Like, yes. everything came out at once. And yes. they're like, oh, my God. You guys are way, you know, it was... Yeah. Once we got that machine, that fine-tuned machine working, it right. was absolutely incredible, the output we had on that right. show. Yeah, it, it, it ended up being a, a really big thing. And it, and it transitioned right into stealth, kind of using the same methodology, yep. right? Uh, using the yeah, same kind of notion. I think thing. they coined the term uh, sham positing. <laughs> yep. I think Chris, Chris Harvey ter- uh, uh, had that term, sham positing, which is, you know, we're... Sh- we're comp- shader compositing. Is what <laughs> yeah, it but it's, it's, yeah, exactly. It's shader compositing. I mean, we're, 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 you know, we're, we're, we're trying to synthesize reality with, uh, you know, a creative eye, I guess is, is the idea. It's like we're, yeah. you know, it's, it's only so much we could do at the time to make it truly real. We couldn't really do real GI, for example. So we needed to fake a lot of that, G, those GI effects. So. Right. Yeah. Yeah, it was it was really really interesting, and we had really great names like uh, Makebot was a really good one, but we also had uh, uh, you know Shampositing, and yes. then the Gizmo we had for Stealth was uh, Pimp My Jet, I think yeah. it was called. Yes. <laughs> so uh, so which was really cool. That, that was back in the day when Pimp My Car was a popular yes. show on MTV. Right. Uh, right. <laughs> uh, well, this is, I mean, to, like I said, it's like I learned so much from that process because, again, while <laughs> while I did know a lot about CG, I didn't know anything about compositing. Mm. And so uh, I learned, I, it was on a reverse for me. I was like, oh, how does this all come together? Right. And the thing that fascinated me, and I think I remember having this conversation with you back in the day, was, was like when I realized that compositing is actually just math. <laughs> <laughs> It's just a plus thing. It's 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 multiplications and additions. It's really, and, it's uh, and I started was like, wait a minute, this is just math. And being a math person myself, I was like, mm-hmm. oh, and it just started to click for me. And I just really started to understand like this is cool because then it's like, oh, how does this add to this and mm-hmm. plus this and then you add this and then you get the end. So it was kind of really cool. Um, but you stuck, I mean, you, you were very, you know, you, you were involved in a lot of stuff that in terms of the innovation that was going on DD, you were still very involved, uh, uh, with the development of nuke. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, some of the big people, I, the people I always reached out to when I had a major new questions were either you, Bill Spitzak or Rob Niederhorst. And if I usually wanted the joke answer, I would ask Rob, Niederhorst. Yes. but, <laughs> uh, but I remember like that was sort of a really big, important part of my education. I really wanted to. So thank you for, for, for helping me. Think that yeah, process. no worries. Well, I had a huge education from the other side, um, especially when developing the 3D system for Nuke, because I was a neophyte when it came to that stuff. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, just my, what the idea of what I thought lighting was, for example, was completely right. blown away at, uh, during iRobot. It's like I had no idea what lighting meant until iRobot. And then 
I went right. to left digital main and went to image rovers and I still I had even a worse concept of what lighting was until I got to image rovers and I had to do it in feature animation. I was like, oh my god, the lighting we did at digital main was like a drop in the bucket compared to the level right. of complexity that you have to do for for so is this this learning experience of just opening my eyes like multiple times. It's like, oh my god. <laughs> Well, let's let's talk about that transition. What's, what, so, give people an idea of what Image Movers uh, was and what, what you know what brought you to that to that uh, to to going there. Well, so uh, I had been so I was working in production. Um, you know, my first compositing job was on Paul Thirteen, like I mentioned, and then I did m more compositing. And then I was given an opportunity to be a compositing supervisor uh, on Fifth Element, um, and that oh, right. that was a huge. It's like, what do you mean? I've only been compositing for a couple of years. I'm going to be a supervisor. You know, that was a big, right. you know, so it was this nonstop, like every single show, every year was this another show, another, another step up, another complexity level. And it just kept building and building and building and building, building until by the mid two thousands, mm -hmm. you know, I was getting fairly burned out. Um, so right. the last show I officially supervised was Eon Flux. Uh, which I co-supervised with uh, David Prescott. Uh, and that was 2005, 2000, yeah, 2005, I want to say. Uh, so yep. by that time, you know, been going like 100%, 110%, you know, fast. So I needed a break. Um, so by the time, uh, like 2007 rolled around, I decided to take a break and just like take a, you know, uh, what do you call it, a sabbatical, right? Sure. And so I, I, yeah, I remember. Yeah, I left ED uh, for about a year. I went to work with um, uh, on the Avatar test uh, for a short period of time, actually, which was interesting. Um, right. And then I ended up at DreamWorks for about six months. Um, uh, Darren Grant, uh, they needed a little bit of color, color help, so I did that. Um, and then during that time, Digital Domain got bought, right? Uh, so that's right. <laughs> it became digital domain 2.0 in that in that in that year, um, and so so I I decided to come back to DD because they asked me you know are you interested in helping productize Nuke to get Nuke, you know out into a, a more into a bigger product and I was like yes I am right. So I came back for that and I came back to do a little bit of color work but I was no longer doing production, uh, actor production. Work. Okay. Uh, and then image movers kind of came out of left field and it was, it seemed like the opportunity I was looking for because it was feature animation and feature animation is production, but in a far lower um, uh, intensity. Right. <laughs> right. And so that's, that was, and I wanted to leave LA and get, and take a break. So that was up in Northern California in uh, Marin County. Um, so I did right. that. So in 2008, uh, went up to Cal uh, Northern California, um, and was I think that... Sonia Bouchard was up there too, right? Yeah, she came a little bit later. Um, yeah, yeah. We ended up working on Christmas Carol, and then Marsney's Moms, and then Disney shut it down. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. But it was a and very this was exciting... group, right? Yes, it was a very exciting yeah. uh, couple of years. It was a uh, uh, kind of a dream come true, kind of, or a, you know, it was a startup. And it was a startup consisting of all these great people from all different companies that around California mainly. You know, ILM mm -hmm. and Disney and Sony and Digital Domain and Tippett and you name it. It was like, it, it, 
you know, so it was a really good group of people coming together to start this company up from fresh. So you had this blank slate where, you know, I couldn't certainly say that I was an expert at lighting, but here's a bunch of people from ILM who are, <laughs> right? Right, uh, right? And so I think we, we, we had a great, great group of people who, uh, who had some amazing um, talent, and it all came together and gelled. Um, and so, you know, the, the movies we made weren't necessarily the best, but the, the production system that we put in place was actually quite, uh, quite impressive and, and very efficient and worked really, really well for the right. short period of time that we were able to do it. It, I mean, it was put together very, very quickly. Right. So, yeah, it was interesting to think about, about where that, you know, I think it was ahead of its time because obviously, you know, Zemeckis, uh, had some feedback about, mm. you know, how, how Polar Express looked yes. and, and, uh, some of the other things. But I think if you look now, it's like people are actually trying to do exactly yes what was being done then. Well, certainly uh, Avatar. And, you know, they've got better motion capture techniques. Mm -hmm. They've got a few other things that are, that have caught up that, yeah. that some of the technology has caught up to the idea. So that concept of virtual production and what it meant is very much alive. In a lot, I mean, just for God's sake, just look at Avatar right now, right? Avatar was a similar technique. It, it was. And, and like I said, I had, I was on the Avatar test for a brief period of time in 2000. Right. I guess it was. Um, so I had wow. seen, you know, where they were. And then it wasn't a matter, right. it was like a year and a half later, and I was starting at Image Movers, and where I started was at the uh, Playa del Rey facility where Digital Domain is in now. That building was where Image oh, Movers was, right? That's, so their motion capture stage, that was the Image Movers motion capture stage. I did realize that, yeah. I walk into that building, and like the first thing I see, the first door to my right, I look in, and I see all these... Um, head, um, uh, like mannequin heads, you know, foam mannequin heads uh -huh. uh, with these head, um, these head video recording systems. What, what do you call them? The, the, the head mount, the head mount, the head mount, the head mount yeah. recording, right? For the, and I was like, wow. And I went in and looked at them and they were really polished. They were very professional. I mean, they looked really well done, industrial design. Like this was like third or fourth generation. And what I had just seen sure. in Avatar was they could barely get a lipstick camera stuck on an aluminum tube. <laughs> and I was like, oh, my God. So Bob right. had such a, like a head start on this. He had, he had gone to a such level of refinement. And I, you know, but realistically looking at it back, you know, it was really the, the, pro, the projects just were, were lacking, right? Uh, the projects right. he decided to do, I think, were just, he was too ambitious, um, Right. But, uh, right. I mean, he's an, he's still an amazing filmmaker. Mm -hmm. I still appreciate all of the amazing things he's done. I mean, I've learned a lot. I was, uh, what did I just watch the other day that I hadn't seen in for a contact? I saw contact mm. and it's just such an amazing film. So oh, he's fantastic. Just great. Yeah. Yeah. It was great, great to work with him for, for, you know, that short period of time. And, uh, yeah, the eye reflections, we were, we were extremely, um, attuned to that. Uh, when we right. started, we were, and we, that was, I remember, this was something that we were obsessed about in iRobot <laughs> that we had to get eye reflections just, and perfect, we didn't, and we know? didn't, um, because it turns yeah. out that in fact, you can see it in my eyes now, uh, you know, I've got these yeah. fairly large, um, area lights, essentially there's a, there's a circle light 
We right. we did our first test with with Scrooge in in the where there's a candle. He's lit by a candle. He's sitting at the desk, and so mm-hmm. we were doing these first tests, and we thought that looked pretty good. We we were you know we got the eye reflections in in context. Bob did not like them. He was like, I don't I don't like the eye mm. reflections, and we were like you know our adrenaline like looks like an adrenaline like oh my god what do you Uh-oh. mean you don't like them it's like right and he's like i don't like them the problem was that he couldn't necessarily quantify what it was about them that he didn't like and we did a bunch of tests and it come to figure figure it out that we weren't simulating the physical size of the light so he was expecting to see you know like a like a window shape you know like a square oh, shape right or a, a, a gobo, or some shape. And what he was seeing was a point. Right. And then as the camera pushed into Scrooge, that point just stayed the same size. It didn't grow bigger. Yep. And so there was a physicality missing because we were just doing standard, at the, for that time, standard specular. You know, specular calculations. Right. And it was like, and so we, we thrashed and we went, oh my God. Until we fig- finally figured out, we did a bunch of tests, we got some bunch of footage, and we realized that he was missing those big windows, window shapes in his eyes. Yeah. And so once we got that... Actual we were, reflections. Yes, actual reflections. Um, <laughs> so they were like, oh my God, I think we, we dodged that bullet, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. It's interesting. I, I, do, I do remember... Uh, you know, when I, the revelation where I, when I realized as, as a lighter that specular and reflection are actually the same thing and that specular mm-hmm. is just a cheap reflection. Yes. <laughs> Correct. Yes. So, um, but anyway, it was interesting to, to think about that. Okay. Well, that's fascinating. Uh, so, so you were at Image Measures Digital, and I think you went to uh, uh, DreamWorks after that. Is that correct? You were- yeah. So Disney, Disney shut us down, uh, and so, yep. but conveniently, um, PDI was uh, just south right. of San Francisco, and Darren Grant was there at the time, um, and so they had just uh, purchased Nuke, uh, you know, mm. months literally. I mean, or a month. It was right, right at the time. And so Darren right. was looking for help to help get Nuke integrated into 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 DreamWorks uh, production system. So right. that's what I came over to do, and uh, spent a lot of time uh, writing a lot of custom tools for Nuke that that were attuned for feature animation. Um, some of them had okay. already you know had already experienced uh, with that with uh, Dream uh, sorry Image Movers, but DreamWorks mm-hmm. was even you know another level of complexity and they had some okay. very specific needs. So, uh, and Nuke wasn't designed to work in feature animation. It wasn't designed to work so procedurally. It was really intended for shot production with, with an artist. Right. So uh, there was a lot of stuff that needed to be refined uh, to, to, to tune it for, uh, yeah, PDI DreamWorks' workflow. So, yeah. So I stayed there uh, for 10 years. Um, uh, 10 years, yeah. Yeah, we moved. Uh, my wife got tired of the fog in San Francisco. <laughs> so okay. we ended so up... So you moved down to Glendale area? <laughs> we moved to Glendale, uh, 2003, yeah. I think. Um, okay. And then, so then I went to work for DreamWorks uh, in Glendale. Um, and then stayed okay. there until, uh, yeah, just two years ago. Wow, okay. Yeah, you were there for a long... I think you worked with... Uh, when, when Nancy was there as mm-hmm. well, and David Prescott, and... Yeah. 
Um, so yeah, a lot uh, of. Did you work mainly on the on the uh, on the uh, uh, in terms of developing the compositing thing, or did you actually do production work as well? No, I never did production at at DreamWorks. Um, okay. I was I kind of given the option of what I wanted to do at the time, but they needed so much. Right. They needed so much technical work that I decided I, I wanted mm -hmm. to focus on the engineering part. So rather than try to like split my time. So I ended up getting stuck in this engineering slot. So I no longer, it, it, Image Rivers, it was great because I was like digital domain. I was kind of splitting my time between being the compositing supervisor and, right. uh, and, and doing and building tools. Right. And, and it was that right. I really enjoyed that kind of straddling of both worlds. Mm -hmm. it, it, digital, uh, DreamWorks, they kind of wanted to, you know, Silo you. Yeah. <laughs> so I decided to silo myself in the engineering area. Uh, and I, that's kind of where I stayed. Um, so I stayed right. involved heavily in production, but, and I sat with the art, the lighting artist to make sure I was always aware of what they were doing. But I really focused on, uh, yeah, tool sets um, and making Nuke work better, again, in a, in a feature animation uh, environment. So. Yeah, yeah. It's so, so that's interesting. So, so over 10 years at DreamWorks, mm -hmm. a lot had changed, obviously, mm. in terms of hardware and mm -hmm. software and oh, yeah. capabilities and production. And yes. What were some of the biggest challenges that you had in, uh, it, from that perspective over those 10 years? Like, what are some of the memorable challenges you had? Ah, there were quite a few. Um, one was how to make Nuke handle large uh, production assets. Uh, so, okay. well, for example, Nuke's 3D system, when I originally wrote it and designed it uh, for, in digital domain, we, our, you know, we wanted to do cards and cubes and spheres and you know, not much and maybe a little object or two. That was about it. Hundreds mm -hmm. of faces, not millions of faces, right? right. Um, and so when I got to, uh, to DreamWorks, um, you know, they wanted to project on production assets. They wanted to project textures on production assets, which had millions of polys right millions of faces and nuke was just like right. it was not designed to do that so i ended up re-engineering uh, a lot of those tools and writing a new renderer ray tracing renderer uh, which would handle all that stuff very efficiently um, so that was a lot mm -hmm. of uh, a lot of what i did was make make customized nukes tool set to handle those kinds of procedural large environments um, working on defocusing that was a <laughs> Huge. That was a huge job, um, making defocusing right. more accurate so that they would get uh, better simulations, uh, and and mm -hmm. that was a big deal. Uh, yeah, there was <laughs> there was a lot um, making making uh, layers. Uh, so when they they got into doing a lot of AOV um, difference uh, subtractive uh, modifications for lighting, right? So to, to increase okay. the speed of their lighting, they wanted to be able to take the beauty render, subtract, um, say, a light's diffuse contribution, modify that light's diffuse comp uh, contribution, then add it back in again. Uh, okay. And Nuke, you, could, you can certainly do that, but you need to wire up uh, you know, a network to do it, uh, which sure. was very inefficient. So I ended up writing a lot of like management, layer management tools, so that, lot, so that artists could do those kinds of subtractive uh, modifications like they did all the other kind of modifications that they did in Nuke. So, yeah, there was a lot of, uh, 
a lot of tools. Yeah. Now, now, I mean, I, I miss, DreamWorks, you know, did you guys get the source code of Nuke to be able to modify Nuke? Like, how is that possible? No, no, no. Did you just, write a bunch of plugins? plugins. Or... Yeah, in fact. Wow. Yeah, people take for granted that that's available, but in Nuke 2, there were no plugins. Uh, so Nuke right. 2, you, if you added a new, uh, if you, if you added a new uh, color corrector, you had to recompile the entire program. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, yep. so having plugins and the ability to write plugins uh, was a huge boon for uh, Nuke 3 and beyond. And, and that allowed right. me at Image Movers and at DreamWorks to really extend Nuke way beyond what it was originally designed to, um, you know, break it. In, in for lack of a better, better uh, phrasing, um, yeah, right. it, it, you can. It's amazing what you can do. Uh, there are definitely limitations, but uh, you can get an awful, little, awful lot done by writing plugins. <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so, so as you you mentioned, you know, you left DreamWorks about two years ago, and now you're you're at the Foundry, right? Yes. Uh, yes. So. Sorry, so my, so my, tell uh, me a little bit about that. Obviously, you know, Nuke is. A much, much more, it's just as special, but much bigger <laughs> as it was back in 2003 when you and I were working on iRobot, you know, yeah. but how, like, what, what is, what is going on with Nuke right now? I mean, it is, it is doing some really interesting things. Yeah. I mean, uh, Nuke has evolved tremendously since 2008, which is when the Foundry took that code base over. Um, a lot right. has changed. I mean, in the end, they added, um, um, stereo, they added deep, mm -hmm. they added mm -hmm. uh, more roto tools. Um, there is, and of course, they added the studio um, timeline uh, interface on top of it. Um, mm -hmm. But what what hadn't changed was some of the like the core architecture left over from Digital Domain, uh, and mm -hmm. specifically the 3D system. <laughs> <laughs> like, right. So all that stuff, the, all that work I did at DreamWorks. Uh, essentially hadn't been done for, for Core Nuke. Um, and okay. it was showing its age. It, hit, it, it was showing its age when I went to DreamWorks. Uh, and so by the time right. you know, the end of the 2010s came along, uh, it was really showing its age. Um, so, yeah, uh, it was really the, um, I guess I can, COVID kind of made that happen. Uh, okay. Because... Uh, you know, the idea of working remotely for a company in London uh, wasn't particularly appealing to me. Because <laughs> right. cause DreamWorks is a very comfy place. So, you know, I got used to, right. I got used to the very comfy environment of, of DreamWorks, uh, especially that campus mm -hmm. in Glendale. Uh, and I enjoyed it. And, yep. uh, uh, and I didn't think that I could work from home all the time. So, but uh, COVID kind of forced that on us all. And I, after right. doing six months of that at DreamWorks, working from home, I realized, okay, I can, I can do that. So that was really the, the change was allowed that to happen. So when they Interesting. came knocking, asking, you know, was I interested in helping, you know, revamp the 3D system? Um, right. It was, a, it was a good time. So I did that uh, November of 2020, I think. Okay, so it's been a little over two okay. years. Yeah, so so you, would, you we had been in the pandemic for a while when that happened, and you started like, okay, I can make this. Happen. Yeah, it was it was it was literally like six months in. I, I realized it's not comfortable. I don't like it necessarily. Sure, it isn't the best, but I can 
I, I can manage. I had figured out how right. to manage by that point. Uh, and you know, for yes. example, I'm still I'm in, in I'm in I'm in my basement in a in a relatively you know, it's not exactly a nice office, you know. But I was working out <laughs> of my <laughs> I was working out of my bedroom for a good year, you know. Uh, so yeah. I'd wake up and the the workstations attached to the wall on a on an arm, you know. I would just kind of swing it <laughs> over, you know. Yeah. Take a shower, walk out, start working. Yeah. Nope. Yeah. I'm still working out on my dining room right now. Oh, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it looks nice behind me. Exactly. Something looks nicer than this. I have, to get, I have to get some posters <laughs> and something. Maybe paint the wall. It's funny. You know what is funny is, is seeing, uh, seeing how people have decorated their lives behind them. Yes. Like, it, you know there's someone who strategically puts their guitar collection behind <laughs> <Yes>. them. <laughs> exactly. Which I thought is yep. kind of funny. Um, but yeah, so, so that's really interesting. Now there's, 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 there's been some interesting research in different areas that, that, that Foundry has been trying to take nuke. And, mm -hmm. you know, one of the things I was doing, uh, you know, doing chaos labs. And one of the areas I was looking at is some areas of virtual production and some of the things going on, uh, specifically, uh, with, uh, interfacing with unreal. And I know that you guys were working on something interesting with mm -hmm. uh, interfacing with, uh, Unreal as well. Um, just to make sure that I get this story right, I think it'd be better if you tell me <laughs> what exactly are some of the efforts that Nuke is doing in terms of it's that that interface with uh, with I, real time. I probably can't. I can, probably can't say with certainty because even I don't. I'm not that involved in in that part of it. I've been very very focused. Um, but I know that the Unreal Reader was beta for a while. Uh -huh. I think in Nuke 13, and then I think. Okay. I think it's released officially. Yes, I in think Nuke that's 14. correct. Uh, to be okay. honest with you, I don't know enough about it to even comment. I do know that you can you you, you get a connection to the um, uh, to the Unreal engine um, via yes. a network connection, and you can uh, you know uh, do do operations with ALVs and the things that you can't do easily in in the Unreal engine interface itself. Yeah. Um, but it's a live linking tool, which is really cool. Um, and it's, I've always sort of been fascinated as, with Nuke as a, not, not just as a compositor, mm -hmm. but as a really interesting viewport. <laughs> just what it, you and a lot of other people. <laughs> yeah. I think uh, yeah. it's, I mean, but the, I, I, this is not to diminish what it does in compositing because the compositing is what makes it such an interesting viewport right? in a lot of ways. Right. Well, uh, but it's got recall, such a great way to sort of think about, you know, how to see things. <laughs> right. Yeah, and a lot of that has to do with the fact that you have all those channels, right, and the ability to manipulate yes. layers so easily. And that's some of the things that you don't get with a lot of other systems. Um, and that's mm -hmm. part of the, the major attraction of Nuke. Um, but yeah, the you know the connection, the real time connection. There's a lot of synergies there, like uh, Katana, you know, being able to connect mm -hmm. uh, Nuke and Katana together to have them share data um, real time. There's a lot of opportunities mm -hmm. there to really uh, make the lighting experience better. Certainly, uh, because uh, even at DreamWorks, you know, there were there was a lot of interest in how can I get these. Because the lighting artists would spend half their time or less in Katana and, and half their time or less in Nuke, depending on what they were doing. But they both usually right. had both applications up simultaneously. 
too, because sure. one each didn't wouldn't do the whole job. Um, so there's a lot right. of opportunities for sharing data between the DCCs like like that. Certainly, Nuke will never do what Unreal Engine does. Uh, likely, I shouldn't right. say that. <laughs> you know, they're intended right. for different. Their tools intended for different purposes. Right? Sure. Uh, but there's certainly ways that we can connect them together, like you saw with that with Unreal, that, that really add a lot of value. So, right. Yeah. Right. Well, that's interesting. So, so what are what are some of your thoughts? I mean, obviously, that was a little peek into an interesting window of what Nuke Nuke is is thinking about in terms of the future. And I think that's a very clever way of doing it because, um, for me, it was more of well, real time is really great, but again, you're stuck with four channels, or better yet, only three in most cases, right? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> and so, uh, so suddenly, going back to that, that, that the power of more than three or four channels right. into Nuke sort of became an interesting, like, okay, well, what if real time could have 64 channels or whatever it is, right? Yeah. And so what, what's, what is the next level for, for, for Nuke and, and Foundry in terms of thinking about computer graphics and where you go from there? Uh, that's a big... <laughs> that's a big. Uh, well, certainly, um, you know, with Nuke 14, we have added a USD uh, architecture yes. into it. So that opens up a lot of opportunities for us to... Um, do a lot more complex uh, scene work. Um, and in terms of real time, uh, being able to visualize scenes uh, open, based on USD, right? So there's a lot of USD visualization right. that you can do there. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah, real time is, is, the, uh, is, is tricky. Um, right. You know, making, making Nuke work faster is always is always a, a, a major goal, and because that that fits right in with the real time work. So if you can't if you can't process the data quickly, you know it's certainly not real time. Right. <laughs> so adding the capability even more of of, of Nuke being able to do uh, processing in, on the GPU, processing color mm -hmm. data through the GPU with more than four channels. Um, there's a lot of opportunities there. Uh, it's probably never going to be a full GPU compositor um, just because there's so there are just like in the flame where we, we discovered we had to move from flame to nuke because flames hardware couldn't do certain things. When we, when we hit the list, list the limits of the flame hardware, we, we then took a massive uh, speed hit and having to do things through software. So nuke, we took the opposite, right. the opposite tack. We said, well, we'll just say everything was software and not attempt to accelerate mm -hmm. via hardware. And then we can just, we can, uh, we can, we can uh, duplicate, right? We can get a lot of CPUs working on the problem. So there's a, sure. there's a balance in there. <laughs> there's a balance right, right, right. where, you know, these days you can do so much more with the GPU, but you still have, you still have limitations. You still can't do, sure. you know, massive resolutions, for example, that you can do in software, or you, you can't do, some of the more complicated operations, certainly not with multiple channels. So I don't know. I, I'm, want, I'm, I'm kind of <laughs> kind of wandering here. Um, but yeah, I think I think you're absolutely right. I mean, we've been chaos has been 
working on GPU side of things for a long time. And we've had huge successes in those areas, but I think you're absolutely right. We are, even though we've been doing GPU stuff since 2008, the CPU doesn't seem to be going away either. <laughs> it's right. like there's still a lot of things we need to take care of, right? right. On the CPU side of things, so, uh, which is yeah. a fascinating thing. Now you did mention USD and I did, yes. you know, we talked briefly about, uh, uh, about the viewport and how I love the, <laughs> I love that, that nuke viewport. It's like home to me. Yeah. Uh, but what about, uh, what about Hydra? Like uh, how is, is there, so, is there things about thinking about Hydra delegates and being able to you to integrate a Hydra uh, viewport inside of the nuke viewport? Um, yes. That's in fact what nuke 14 has. So nukes for nukes 3d viewport is Hydra. There it's storms, storms, storms specifically. It's, it's, it's okay. Uh, yeah. Um, so you're going forward, it will be hundred percent storm right now. We have to, we have both, both, uh, the legacy 3d system and the new 3d system working in the package. So you can essentially switch back and forth. Um, but yeah, okay. uh, what you see in the new, in the new 3d system in the 3d viewport is storm. So going forward, um, even though we don't have, we've prototyped this, but we don't have this released, is having hydrodelegates, so a V-Ray hydrodelegate, hydro right. um, you know, spitting out pixels into Nuke. Uh, that's definitely uh, something we're very interested in doing uh, sooner than later. Um, and so yeah. that you can, you can, you know, hook in whatever renderer you want, whatever production renderer you want. Um, the main limitation... The dream is is actually you can do multiple ones. You can have yeah, do right. all kinds of renders at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah, the main the main tricky part for Nuke is uh, you know getting those renders to work well in Nuke's how Nuke wants to parse data, or how it wants to break right. up. It wants to break up the image into little tiles, which are really long and thin called scan lines. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> or a whole bunch of little thin tiles, right? Uh, uh, it really likes to think that way. It's very efficient at thinking that way. Um, but that's not the way right. a lot of renderers think. So that's, that's probably the biggest challenge is trying, just trying to get the interface between how, how uh, Nuke wants to think about image data and how uh, a renderer wants to think about image data. Um, but Sure. These days with ray tracers, it's a lot easier because you no longer have these kind of blocked kind of rendering that you had in the older days. You, you can do different shapes of hot tiles much more efficiently now. So right. there's a lot of, yeah. But you can also do progressive or path tracing as well as exactly. how handle path tracing. Yeah. Well, it doesn't, it doesn't handle progressive, right? Because progressive means right. the, entire, <laughs> the entire image changes, right? And so right. it's <laughs> yeah. So all the scan lines change all at once. Uh, so Nuke doesn't like right. to think that way. Nuke likes to think, you know, every when it when it outputs the scan line, it's done with that scan line, right? Right. Um, gotcha. So unfortunately, what it means is Nuke needs to keep like re re updating, update, update, Refresh. update, up. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, but there's there's you know opportunities to to help or to to modify the architecture to help those kinds of workflows, and there's, that's one of the reasons why I'm. I'm back. Well, I'm not back to the foundry, but I'm at the foundry, you know, working on this yeah. to try to figure out some of these new workflows. What What are your What are your thoughts? I mean, obviously, you know, we we were, you know, we were at DD during the the, the emergence of EXR when we had mm. to move away from all these proprietary systems 
to this very promising open source, yes. very elaborate <laughs> EXR system that was daunting but exciting at the same time. Do you feel the same way about USD? Yes, uh, yes, exciting and daunting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. it's, uh, it's extremely powerful, but also extremely complicated. Um, and so it, a, lot of, a lot of getting used to USD is learning how it wants to think, right? It wants to think in a certain mm -hmm. way. And, uh, and you just, it's, it's this, this process of learning how to fold that, that, that technology into something like Nuke and how to get them to behave. Because, uh, you know, Pixar didn't necessarily design USD to work in a procedural <clears throat> graph system like a Houdini or mm -hmm. a Nuke or a Katana. Uh, so there are challenges like it, with that sure. architecture. So yeah, it's, a, it's, it's you know, we're, we're, we're diving in head first and we've gotten really, really far, um, but there is still, you know, a fair amount of learning and, and adapting to do. So it's a big challenge. Awesome. Yeah, well, I'm very excited about it. I think, you know, it's about time we got away from the crutches of FBX and <laughs> yeah. all those other horrible systems, uh, which, is, uh, which is cool. Yeah. Um, well, uh, listen, it's, this is very exciting. Uh, uh, we're getting, we've wrapped up for about an hour and I just want to, you know, if there's anything that you can tell people to get excited about, what, you know, could they look forward to and seeing what's happening at the foundry, what's happening soon, anything they can be excited about? Well, certainly uh, copycat in machine learning is one of the biggest areas that has got everybody really excited. Uh, and so there's the research mm -hmm. division at Foundry has been doing an incredible job of getting those tools working inside of Nuke. Uh, and there's a whole, I mean, it's just the beginning of what can be done with those kind of systems. And so uh, there's th the exploration that's going to happen in the next few years when it comes to either doing roto or smart rotoing or, or who knows what people are going to think of to do. Uh, be the, the, it's just the beginning of us. Oh, like, what, what if we can do, you know, what if we can key? What if we can, you know, render who knows what? Uh, so, yeah, that, that's, that's one of the most exciting areas. And uh, uh, that is going to just explode in the next few years. Yeah. So, yeah, it's interesting. I it's been it's been a roller coaster of emotions and, and <laughs> excitement and, and fear and yes. and everything that's going on with machine learning right now, which I think is really uh, a, a big a big deal. I mean, and well, I'm sure that you know what we're doing is going to be very important to 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 explore those things. I think in this context, it's really a perfect tool because you're not attempting to necessarily use the creativity. Right? You're not trying to simulate necessarily the creativity of human mind, which is all this uh, you know, stable diffusion and all that is trying to synthesize that or text. It's more about replicating what you can do with your visual system. Now, your ability to, right. to rotate something, your ability to get rid of a wire and see that wire over time. Mm -hmm. that was always, that, those are always the most difficult things to do for us as humans, but we can, we're really good at it. Our visual system is really, really good at that. So having machine learning op open up those opportunities to really take that to the next level because optical flow is what we had done before, right? Yep. And optical flow is like Russian roulette. It's like one time it would work great, and maybe the next time yep. it works okay, and then it fails, 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 and then it works again, <laughs> right? And yeah. so 
we all kind of went through that optical flow stage going, oh, gosh, it's great, but my God, if it would just be, it would be more work reliably, right? That's, that's, sure. that's the, I think, the, the, the main hope here is that machine learning will allow you to increase that reliability so that it's not so much about a Russian roulette. Will I get a good result? So, uh, yeah, there's just a huge, uh, huge opportunities there. Yeah, absolutely. I think, and I think you brought it up and, and bringing up optical flow is a perfect uh, way to put it because the, the thing is we're seeing a lot of really interesting things like, you know, automatic masking and mm -hmm. things of that nature, right? But we're not seeing good temporal stuff, yes. right? Not seeing really like an optical flow was sort of like, oh, temporally it's much smarter, right? right. Up to a point. But now I'm starting to think machine learning is getting better and better mm -hmm. at temporal exercises that I think right. is really cool. And especially when you think of it in terms of roto and even infilling, right? Mm -hmm. Or in painting. Yes, in painting. Uh, and what, you know? In painting. So, yeah, exactly. So there's, yeah, lots of opportunities, lots of areas for growth. And it kind of is almost the perfect, you know, our brains are. Our visual system, that's, that's what our, how our visual system works, right? So, yep. you know, uh, it's, it's an excellent uh, uh, application of that technology. I'm right. not sure, I'm not yeah, sure yeah. Writing, writing texts or, or, or children's stories is a great app, you know, application of that technology, well, but this is. <laughs> well, it may be. It may be to a point. I, I, I don't know. I've had several conversations about this. I certainly I'm certainly I'm very supportive of the debate that's going on in terms of people's worries and concerns about copyright, et cetera, right. something that needs to be debated in the proper context of a courtroom. Mm -hmm. Uh, which I think is the perfect place to figure out whether <laughs> what that is. Right. But at the same time, I will tell you this: just from trying to be a little bit of a uh, of a of an optimist about it, I have never seen so much excitement about mm. art. Yeah, well, in, that's a good point. <laughs> then, then now, right? I People are so that. excited about making art yeah, yeah. more than I've ever seen anywhere else. Right. To the point where now there's just this huge demand for people making images everywhere. Right. Right. And then, so it's like uh, to me that just you know that makes me happy. But be it, listen, you know, tackle the ethical <laughs> issues <laughs> and legal issues on the, as it may. But the excitement over art and creativity is at a booming level and to right. me it was like that to me just sounds positive <laughs> so. well, that's very exciting yes yes yeah well awesome well thank you so much jonathan this has been absolutely yeah, no great having you on uh you i think are my second person from foundry to come on uh ah. um jody. Yeah. jody jody was on jody Bannon? about two years ago oh okay <laughs> two three years ago that's right yeah really early days of the pandemic so jody was yes. on um, and, uh, and yeah, so that's, a, that's, a, you're the second person to be on, which is very exciting. So, uh, both people that I met at the, <laughs> so there's definitely some strong roots with, of Nuke and digital domain. Right. That's true. Yeah. She was part of that digital domain 2.0 group. That she, was, she was, she was. Right. And, uh, and she was, uh, she's, uh, a, a, a brilliant business person. Mm -hmm. And I really appreciate how she, she runs the business. So absolutely. Well, cool. Well, thank you so much, Jonathan. I really appreciate it. And yeah, no worries. Uh, yeah we'll, we'll look forward to, to Nuke 14 and 15. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs>